I'm not going to risk the lives of our SWAC. I said, those guys on their drum magazines of a thousand rounds of armor-piercing rounds are going to kill us, and I'm not going to do it. No, you're ordered to do it. I said, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Welcome to Pod Bless America. I'm Jim. And I'm Dan. And today is part two with my dad. Uh, if you listen to last week, it ended pretty emotionally. Uh, we were both uh, blotting our eyes here. Must be pollen. Yeah, yeah. And I'm a trying to keep of, it strong. I'm not of, crying. You crying. <laughs> I ain't no bitch. <laughs> ain't no bitch. I ain't no crying, bitch. You crying. You bitches. Something in my eye. <laughs> a bunch of dudes crying in here. What are you guys? <laughs> God damn it. So we're going to talk today. And I said that we were going to get into a story that now, listen, Ban Karai was amazing. Um, that was the day I almost lost my dad. And to hear some of these stories, to hear him on the deck when, when the weight of what he was doing landed on him that day. Um, I've never heard that story. I'm hearing a lot now that I had never heard before, which makes me think that maybe this needs to be a recurring segment. And Dan has an idea where he wants to have both of our dads here. Um, and we want to, we want to get both of their stories. And I, you know what, this is our podcast. If nobody cares about our dad stories, I don't give a fuck. This is our podcast. And you know what, we're going to want this 20 years from now. Um, and we will always have it, but today we're going to get back into Vietnam. And there was a story that we call Chicago. And I'm going to just let my dad tell this story. You see the movies, you see Top Gun, you watch your videos, you see things and, and and you think you know what it's about to be a pilot, right? You think you know what it's about to be a pilot in Vietnam or, or in Afghanistan or wherever you're in dogfights, you're, you're just dropping bombs on, on the targets and that's their job, right? They, they know what they signed up for, but there's a human aspect to this that people don't think about. And today you're going to hear about that human aspect. And well, you know what? Um, I'll talk about it after we're done. I'll just let my dad go, man. Dad, I think you're back with us there. Is your mic on? I hope so. Yep, sure is. All right. So Chicago might be one of my favorite stories ever from you. I'll just let you have it. You know, I, I don't even remember what month it was. It was probably mid, mid cruise there, maybe in August or especially if the, if the guy that I'm talking about is listening to it. I don't know when he was in Vietnam or anything, the guy from, that I thought was from Chicago. But anyway, uh, I would say maybe August, September of uh, 1971. We launched as a two-plane, and we were assigned a target. We were assigned uh, to get uh, with one of the facts, and they were going to put us on target and stuff like that. The Airborne Command and Control came up on the guard frequency, and uh, ask for anybody to to respond uh, that there was a divert. They needed a divert. That there was a situation that that needed anybody with ordnance in the air right then to respond to. So we had two A sevens from Attack Squadron twenty seven, which was R two, and then we had two A sevens from Attack Squadron ninety seven, which was our sister squadron. We both responded that we were fully loaded and we were en route to a target and they said you're an immediate divert contact i assume it was a nail fact i think it was nail it's either nail or covey I, you know nails you're talking about of, the call sign for, nails were out of thailand and coveys were out of uh, you're talking about the call sign for the forward air controller right, right. okay but it, it, they gave us a you know a, a rendezvous point to contact the forward air controller this was in laos he was he was orbiting someplace in laos so we start heading towards him and we get there, and what he says is, I can hear him talking on the radio, but then he, we check in with him, and, and he says, okay, what I got here is I got troops in contact that are in the process of being overrun. I think troops in contact are going to be overrun, and I'm thinking, we're over Laos. I mean, and I didn't have the big picture on the war. I didn't understand special forces units. I didn't understand proxy where, wars going on in other countries. Troops were. <laughs> yeah. I thought, who are the troops in contact? Are these Laotian troops? Who, who is this guy working with? But he says, we got troops in contact that are, are uh, in the process of being overrun. And I later learned that these facts would be the angels for these reconnaissance units or special forces units that would be inserted if they got into trouble. They would call the facts and say, hey, man, we're in trouble. Get, get us some help here. I didn't realize that at that point. I'm trying right. to they needed, they needed air support. And just so yeah. people understand, FACS is FAC, Forward Air Controller. Forward, forward Air Controller. So they would contact the Forward Air Controllers yeah. and be like, look, the man, we're, on the ground, we're in the we, shit. 
A guy with, <laughs> on the guy, big phone with the big antenna with the backpack, the probably, right? They were probably small units, but say, hey, man, we're in deep shit. Can you get us some help here? And I don't know why I could hear him talking to the ground units, but I heard as we're checking in with him, he says to the ground units, okay, guys, everything's going to be all right. The big boys are here now. I'm thinking, big boys? Is he talking about B-52s or what are we getting <laughs> That's what I would here? think, right? The, the big boys the are The carpet here. bombers. <laughs> you know, I wanted to say, hey, excuse me, uh, <laughs> excuse me, you know, we only got eight 500-pound uh, bombs. Uh, but he says, the big boys are here. They're going to get you out of this mess. You start looking up from your plane, like <laughs> no. All of a sudden, you know, a lot of stuff we would do. We'd be bombing trucks, and we would be doing stuff, and bombing bridges or bombing stuff, and bombing truck parks or storage areas. But this was the first time that I thought, wait a minute, we're because we never worked in South Vietnam, where there was a lot of troops in contact that needed support. All of a sudden. We're in the middle of Laos, and somebody needs help in the middle of Laos, and I can't. I figure, well, we're helping. Somebody, I don't know who they are. So, but I hear him talking to the, saying, the big boys are here. It's going to be all right. And then why I'm hearing him talking to them, I don't know. But I can hear, there's a bleed coming through his radios. He's got two or three radios gone. And I hear the guy talking to him on the ground, or the guy that's that's on the ground talking to him. And I, I said to myself, I mean, that's, that's not a Laotian, that, that, that guy's from Chicago, because I, I grew up with a bunch of guys from Chicago at the University of Michigan. They got a little inflection in their voice. You knew their cadence. I, I, know, I know a Chicago voice when I hear one. It, it's very distinct to me because I hung around with all those guys from Chicago. And I thought, these are American troops down there. That guy's definitely from Chicago. And I even wanted to come up, hey, you know, <laughs> Chicago. hey is that guy from Chicago? Hey, does he know uh, Ricky? <laughs> I just want to know. Hey, I, I know a lot of guys from Chicago, but I knew he was from Chicago because of the inflection in his voice. But I don't understand why I'm hearing all this. And I don't understand I'm trying to process why are American troops, a guy from Chicago, Illinois, in the middle of Laos? What? I'm just trying to process that information. I don't say anything. I just I factor all that in. And then he rolls in and said, OK, we got to we got to be very good with our running headings here. He said, I'm going to mark where they, the bad guys are, but we got to run uh, parallel to the good guys. They're on the east side of the river. The bad guys are, are on the other side. So you got to make sure you're running parallel with your drops and everything. But you completely understand this. Yeah, I'm in for a mark. He's in for a mark. And we got you got it. Yeah, we got it. We got it. So we're in. And uh, I don't know. I, I think I was number two in that that flight, but uh, we make multiple runs trying to make sure we're, you know, we want to give them as much effort as we can because we got a thousand rounds of 20 millimeter to expend. We just, and you were actually on your way to another mission. Another yeah. mission. So yeah. this, this ordinance was destined for Something. a mission. Right. But we now. Never, never got to that mission. We got, it was an airborne divert by airborne command and control. Somebody's in trouble. They need your help right now. Take your bombs, take your guns, go there and help them out. And so we were going to drop all of our bombs, all our stuff. So we make our runs and I can hear the guys screaming, yeah, 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 right there, right there. They're right. They're, you know, they're These are the guys on the ground. These are the guys on the ground. I can hear that he's, then he's relaying. He says, hey, the guys, they're saying right there, you're on, you're right on target. You're doing great. You're doing great. Good job. Keep it up. Keep it up. Stuff like that. And so we expend all of our ordnance and uh, everything. Everything. We, we expended everything we had. Bullets. Every yeah, round. Gave them the business. Yeah. We, we, I mean, these are, this are, you went over there to make these trouble. These are American troops in trouble. And we only got four planes and we got, we gave them everything. So we leave and he said, hey, thanks guys. I think, you know, I think we did the job. Bah, 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 bah. And then we're sitting on the back porch and I figured that's the end of the story. And, you know, we went back and I never heard word one from the forward air control. I never heard anything. And then Jimmy was sitting on my back porch and Jimmy said, did those guys make it out? And that's when I started crying. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, after all these years, I don't know. I felt so good about that mission. I felt so good about helping guys. Being able to execute. That, that was the job I really felt most proud about was helping guys on the ground so that they wouldn't be overrun. 
but I have no idea whether those guys ever survived. I don't know whether everything we did enabled them to get extracted from that mess or whether they were overrun and killed. And that's, that's why I started crying Mm -hmm. because it's. Well, and one of the things you said to me that that day were that you hope that Chicago is, you hope that that he's sitting on his deck with his grandkids telling him about the time that these A7s came in and saved his ass, you know, but you don't know. But I don't know. Maybe he died in 19, what, 71 in some shithole country halfway around the world that he never learned about in school. That's exactly what I reflect back on. You know, I, I would hope that someday he's sitting there with with his grandkids saying, hey, let me tell you a story about t- we were in deep shit in Laos. And these A7s showed up, and man, they did the job. They saved our bacon that day, that's for sure. I would hope that that happened, but I don't know. I didn't, I and the problem got- is that you don't know who this guy is, and we don't know if this guy's actually from Chicago. And he was from Chicago. <laughs> There's was. no doubt. There's no doubt in his he's mind. He's at least been to Chicago. Yeah. He's like he's like but northwest you know, northwest suburb. I just, and kinda, there's no way for us to even connect with this guy. Like people that are listening to this might be like, holy shit, that was me. But we don't know. I mean, if you were in Laos in probably August of seventy one, right? Seventy one? Yeah. It was, yeah. Well, the summer. It was a summer of seventy. Summer, summer of seventy one, man. Listen, share this with all the Vietnam vets you know. If you were in Laos in the summer of 71. On the east side of the river. On the, on the east side of the river. Deep shit. And you called the forward air controller and you said, hey, look, man, we are in deep shit. We need help. And you had four A7s show up like God coming out of the clouds himself, dropping every bomb they had and shooting every round they had to save your ass. If you were the one that said the big boys are here. If you heard it. was the forward air control. Yeah. He said, hey, you, you're okay now. The big boys are here. And listen, you probably remember that. Oh, you? Why, how would you forget it? If you remember talking to your forward air controller and he said the big boys are here, hit us up. <laughs> you know, I hope you're still alive, man. Yeah, it's so true because it's that, you know what, all the bridges that you destroyed when I was growing up, it's a funny story. My dad, every time I pour, my dad looks at it like, Jesus Christ, how do you drink so much? But I only pour like, what is it? A half inch. A half a shot. Yeah, it's just, it's a little bit. Uh, every time I pour, though, I see my dad look over like, oh, fuck. Uh, but, you know, all the bridges. Oh, funny story. So. As I was growing up, my dad had slides, carousels of slides, and they're amazing slides that he's supposed to be getting to me. He he hasn't as of yet, dad. (laughs) (laughs) Noted. Uh, Duly noted. Uh, But they're amazing slides, and they're from from the missions. Um, I mean, you see A7s dropping bombs. You see slides of bridges blowing up. You see slides of, you know, crater after crater after crater. They're just incredible. But I had seen these slides so many times because he would have people over and he would narrate the slides. And there was a time that I took him to school and I actually gave his talk at school. I'm going through the slides and I, man, you would think I was in Vietnam. (laughs) You were there. (laughs) Right. 14 years old or 13 years old. You would think I was in Vietnam, but all those bridges, all those fuel depots. And I, I know that they all mean something for the war, but to actually save Americans, to actually be in there now. And now look, this ain't a bridge. These are all dudes who have lives, right? They have people that love them. They want to go back to Chicago. They want to have a hot dog, you know, and to be able to get in there then, I don't know. For me, that would be it. That would be the pinnacle for me. That's the epitome of what the A7 should be doing. And that's the epitome of what I I really wanted to do. Because most of the stuff we did was Ford Air Controller and find some trucks heading with supplies down south on the Ho Chi Minh Yeah, yeah, you're trying to cripple the enemy. Yeah. Well, you're trying to to save asses. To feel like you saved. But to not know is kind of... I feel like you're an A7 driver in an A10 body. I feel like I feel like you should have been flying A tens. Is that a warthog? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did they have A tens in Vietnam? Were they flying then? No, no they weren't. No. They would have, and I wish. I mean, those guys—that is exactly what they do, right? Yeah. What you did for Chicago is what those guys are doing every day. Well, I was telling when you walked out, I was telling Dan that uh, you know that those fighter pukes. They used to call the A7 the slough, the short, little, ugly fucker. <laughs> this is so funny. <laughs> but it, it was an hell of an airplane. I mean, and, it, and I always thought the A10 was even an uglier 
That A-10 is not a pretty plane. Even when I, they put the jaws at, at the, like well, the teeth in the awesome, front of it? It's an awesome platform <laughs> for, for... Oh, they lay waste. Yeah. Those guys, and man. I, we had the same gun that they do. Look, I, you know, I mean, I, I have such an affinity for the A-7. Every, every, well, I got to get my keys out. That's why I'm doing this. Every chance I get to see an A7, to look up an A7, I just, I love it. I do. And I've, I actually bought this for you. I've showed you this, my yeah. keychain. It's a pewter keychain. It's on my keys um, of an A7. And I bought it for my dad. And I'm like, nah, this is mine. You know, <laughs> I bought I it do. for my dad. I did. Now it represents him on I your keychain. I mean, I've shown it to you. I have such a love for the A7. And the A7 retired in 87? No, it was in the ni- late 90s. Oh, late 90s. It, it well, I know they, oh, you're right. You're right. Because the yeah. Gulf War was yeah. the last, it, it, you're yeah. right. You're right. In, I think 98 or something like that. that yeah, they, you're right. And, you know, and I see the A7 and I look every year for air shows where there might be an A7 flying. Because my, my dream is to take you to an air show where an A7's flying. There's just not any. You know, I mean, I'm sure there's some that are privately owned, you know, we'll, we'll post pictures of the A7 on our Facebook page, Pod Bless America. But yeah, I've got, I've got a love for the A7. I got a love for the Enterprise. I got a love for the Kitty Hawk. You know, a couple of quick stories about that gun too, that the audience might appreciate. The Gatlin gun uh, would fire 6,000 rounds a minute, 6,000 rounds a minute on that Gatlin gun. So 120 millimeter rounds a second. <clears throat> Although we only carried a thousand rounds, like we couldn't fire six thousand rounds, but and that's the same gun that the A10 has, you know. And you hear that that's what it sounds like from the cockpit when you fire. So one day, actually, the day was uh, December seventh. It was my day mission on December seventh. December seventh was a very big day. (laughs) Big day. We were we had dropped bombs on a target and we're headed back and uh, airborne command and control comes up and said anybody with an unexpended audience come up. So Mike Shaw was leading and Mike says uh, my guns are down. You got any guns left? And I said yeah, I got good guns. So we check in with uh, a forward air controller and he said hey, we're again in Laos. He said hey, we got the uh, they've overrun our airfield. Our airfield in Laos, what do you, t- you know, I'm still trying to process our, who's our, is it a Laotian airfield? Who is it? They've overrun our airfield and they've got their hands on all of our fuel and petroleum products. They, you know, we need to destroy all those products. What do you got? And I said, oh, I got a thousand rounds. And he said, well, they're all lined up against the side of the runway. Can you strafe them and try to ignite the whole, whole thing? Sure, I can. She was like, yeah. Sure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He's like, he's like, can I? He's like, fuck yes. So uh, I've been waiting for this call, I bitches. Said, yeah. I said, yeah, I can do that. So, you know, I can see the airfield. I can see all the drums. I can see all the fuel drums and everything. And I, I give, I roll in with a picture perfect solution, gun solution. I'm, I'm perfect. This is going to be a perfect. And I, I open up with the gun. I give it about a three second burst. Pull off, nothing. Nothing, nothing ignites, nothing. And I'm like, you gotta be shitting. It reminds me of the jerk, right? Like all the gunshots and the oil, it's just dripping out of the drums. He's like, he hates these oil cans. So nothing happened. So I pull off and he said, huh. I said, yeah, huh. I said, I thought I had a pretty good run going there. And he said, well, I don't know. You tried. And I said, no, I'm going to give you another run. He said, no, you're not. So what do you mean? No, I'm not. He said you were getting too much fire there. He said you're not going to give me another run. Just get out of here. He said they they were really shooting a lot at you when you made that run. Did you have to listen to him? <laughs> no, I said. Well, I said that's, that's my first question. <laughs> this is why I wasn't in the military. Authority <laughs> me when I was that age didn't work. Well, I, I said, yeah, that, that, that's advisory on your part. <laughs> I said, I said, I'm a little embarrassed by this. I'll yeah, I'm you, not going out like I'll that. Give you I ain't no bitch. No bitch. I'll give you another run. Dude, that's right. a shirt. You know that, said, right? No, I ain't right. no bitch. He said, I don't think you should, but it's on you, and I appreciate it. That's what he said. So I lined up again. I came in for a slightly different uh, heading and stuff so that the gunners didn't, you know, they couldn't be waiting for me. Yeah, exact same knowing run. your exact approach. But this time, instead of a picture-perfect gun solution, I was like John Wayne. I was just spraying. I was pumping the rudders. I was pumping the stick. I was spraying. Just giving yourself. Oh, yeah, like different. 
<laughs> bullets were going all over the place. I just spray, I hosed down the entire airfield and the, the place just ignited. And by the time we got out of there, there were barrels burning up. The smoke was up to 7,000 feet. And I thought, hmm, maybe next time if I ever do that, I won't bother a picture perfect gun. <laughs> right, right. It's a pray and spray, right? <laughs> How many rounds did you go back with that day? I don't Seven. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't know. One. Yeah, yeah. the slide forward. Yeah, thing no, you got to have magazine. some. You got to have some on the way back just in case. But the number is seven, since that's the number that runs on this episode. <laughs> Another time, too, it was in the DMZ, and we had previously bombed out some bridges. But I check in with the forward air controller, and he says, Hey, you got some, uh, you got guns? And I said, Yeah, I got some guns. And he said, Well, I got about 200 people. He didn't say soldiers. He said, I got 200 people trying to repair the bridge that we took out last night. And they're doing a pretty good job. They're pulling the trees over the road. and But they're going to be successful in repairing that, that we went to all the effort of, of getting out of here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to roll in when you roll in so that they don't have time to get off the road. I'm going to smoke where I want I want your rounds, and then you just... As soon as my rocket hits, you open up so that we get those guys off from repairing that bridge. So, okay. So, he roll, we coordinated pretty well. He rolls in, he fires a rocket, he hits, and I, I immediately opened up and I pull off. And uh, he says, holy shit. And I said, uh, what? He says, they disappeared. I said, well, I was pretty fast. I said... How did they get off the road in that time? He said, they didn't get off the road. They just disappeared. Uh, that's that's that, what that gun can do. Yeah. That's heavy shit. Yeah. yeah. That's heavy he, shit, man. He was amazed. He said, they, there's just nothing there. There's clothing, but all the people disappeared. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, I mean, and you know, I, that's one of the things that always bother me. Like, those guys probably weren't soldiers. They were probably forced labor people at the North Vietnamese said, hey, you're going to come out of your village and you're going to, that always bothered me. Or it was a construction battalion and those bitches got yeah. what's going well, on. You know what though? You know what? I and, I and I've always wondered that. And I mean, when you talk about the Vietnam War and infantry guys may have killed whatever, I don't know, a dozen, 50, 100 people, who knows? Right. You, you put a hurting on some fucking people, man. Well, I'm sure that, I mean, I, I always thought about that. How many people... Because they'd always give you a, a K, uh, KBA, killed by air, as you're leaving. And I would say based on everything, I, I think probably it was up around 500. And it's, it, you know, that bothers you. It sure really it bothers you. That, that was a screwed up war. Do you think it was easier for you? And I, and I think I know the answer to this. But do you think it was easier for you not having to see them? Right? Your target was a fuel depot. Now, if that happened to kill 25 people, eh, you know? I mean, was it easier not having to see them, being removed from not being an infantryman who's looking them in the face and having to shoot them or stab them with a bayonet? I mean, that's a whole lot more intimate. Do you think it was easier at the time? Obviously, now you look back. Mentally, I don't know. I mean, when you know you killed 200 people in one fell swoop, maybe, and that's what he said. He said, I'm going to give you a 200 KBA. And I mean, I've thought about that for a long, long time. I, I wake up at night thinking about that. And still. Still. And my, my, my position always has been, if they complete that bridge, the trucks go over that bridge with all the explosives to go down south and kill American troops. We lost 58,000 American troops. There was a lieutenant commander that I told, man, this bothers me that, that I don't know who those people were. I just don't know the Forward air controller said, you got to prevent them from building that bridge. So I, that's what I did. But I just always have been not very at ease with myself about who those 200 people were. But then he said, well, what are you going to do? Let them build the bridge and go down and kill more American troops that don't want to be in South exactly. Vietnam either? So I don't know. War is a, a bitch, really. Hell yeah, because, I mean, if you got them from building that bridge, then... Uh, maybe they would have finally got Chicago. <laughs> he right. was out Chicago, there doing it. Chicago, Chicago was out of country. <laughs> Chicago was over in Laos someplace. No, he was probably back over. You know, they moved around a lot. They did a I lot of crazy stuff. They did, man, I'll tell you what. It's because think about how people looked at that war, especially from the people that weren't 
there. You know, you had one one Baby faction killers. of the country that was spitting on people when they came back. You have one part of the country that just wanted to go to work and wanted it to be over. You had one part of the country that was like, you know, pushing it because, you know, the military industrial complex. I and mean, there's a there's a huge faction of just a bunch of people that had a bunch of different feelings about it. You know, I, I always go out of my way when I see these old guys wearing these hats, World War Two, especially, but Korea mm-hmm. and Vietnam. I go out of my way to shake their hand I and agree. say, hey, look, man, yep. I really appreciate what you did for yep. us. I hold the you door know? for them. I give yep. them the nod and anything I can do, I, I, do. I do it as and well. You know, one of my favorite things to do is when I see these Korean guys, well, A7s or uh, Vietnam, I always stop a guy and I'm like, my dad flew A7s in Vietnam, man, you know. Um, but one of my favorite things to do is walk up to these Korean guys and say, hey, man, I appreciate your service. I was there. And they look at me and I'm like, I was, <laughs> I was there in 92 and you, st- it was still locked down because of you. And I appreciate you, man. I appreciate the work you put in. And these guys love it, bro. Right. They love it. But at first when you're like, I was there, they're like, listen, kid, exactly. we got some stolen valor going on over here. <laughs> exactly. They're like, bitch, what? No, I, I love it. Um, you guys talk about me crying, uh, the Vietnam wall. I went through FBI training. I was down at Quantico and I used to go back for in-services. I can't remember what year the wall was built, but every time I tried to go to the wall, I'd start crying. I could never get very far down that wall, just looking at 58,000 American lives. So One night I was at Quantico and uh, I had driven back there for some SWAT training or something. I thought I'm going to go up to the wall where I have it all to myself. Big mistake. I I went up there like you know, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, and there wasn't a soul there, and the wind was howling, and it was cold. And so I walked down in there, and I just sat there and cried. Mm-hmm. It, it's an emotional thing. All yeah. those 58,000-plus dying. And when people, when, I, when people complain to me about arthritis, I say, hey, man, there's 58,000 kids from Vietnam give anything to have arthritis right now, anything. And, they all, and the majority of them were kids. They were. 18 to, to 24 year olds and, and you know, all the world war uh, two vets that were still enlisted that were trying to direct these kids on a mission that, you know, it was, it, you can't tell me Vietnam wasn't a proxy war in another country. Right. Yeah. I mean, everyone has that understanding that that's exactly what it was. It was, it was totally mishandled by the, it was a politically mishandled war mm-hmm. by what was his name? That guy from Ford motor company. What was his name? The, uh, the, the secretary to McNamara. Oh. And he admitted that there were so many mistakes made. And all those Navy pilots that were shot down going after the same targets time and time again, there were not so much operational targets. It's just political targets. And yeah. And it was guerrilla warfare. Seven years so, of their lives. In the, so here you are trying to fight a people who in the daytime you think are just normal people in their village. And then at nighttime they're in the tunnels and they're setting traps and they're, you know, you can't. You can't win a war like that. It was a freaking stalemate. Oh, that's exactly right. You know, what you guys should have did was built 10,000 more A7s and just kept, you know, putting it down until, but who knows? Because if it was a proxy war, you don't give up when the other side dies because they're not your people. So, and, and I guess how I feel about the Vietnam War is irrelevant to this topic because you had to live it. You had to go through it. You had to live with it as time goes on. But it was a bunch of, Nonsense, death, well, there, nonsense killing. But there's a there's two sides to the Vietnam War, right? There's there's the political side, and there's my dad's side. There's mm-hmm. the side that had to go and fight that war. And whatever problems you may have with the Vietnam War, don't rest on the side of the guys that had to go fight that war. Exactly. Those guys were there doing the best job they could. They were doing what they thought was right for the country. They had a job to do. You have a problem. Your problem is with the political side of that war. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. But I I just also wish that a lot more people with a lot more sense that were involved in that work had more of a say of enough is enough or, you know, because I mean, the same thing happened in Afghanistan. Sure. Right. It was just a uh, a 10 year trillions of dollars treasure and lives. And just for us to, you know, stalemate, liberating a country that doesn't want to be liberated is what it comes down to. So well, and Vietnam wasn't really a war, right? We've talked about that. I mean, oh, last last war was did, World War II. Congress did not pass. Yeah, it was a conflict. So who's not a war? So who's responsible for all those lives? Well, 
is that's the question. Right? <laughs> um, All right. So you want to get toward the end of your time in the military when you were getting out. Was that a conscious conscious choice by you to to finally get out? Well, I can tell you this: that him being at Lamore made for a great life growing up. Right. I living in California. I was born in California, born at uh, Lamore Naval Air Station. I still remember, and I don't know why, that we lived on North William Street in Hanford, California. Um, I've gone back to Google Maps. I found our house. Looks a whole lot different now. Um, the field. I don't know if you remember this. Do you remember the Mexican kid that I befriended? Yeah. And he came and he stole my bike. Do you remember that? Yeah. And he buried it in the field behind our house. Do you remember that? We found, I think you found, uh, just the handlebar sticking up. And we found it. He, he stole my bike, buried it, was apparently going to come back and get it. I don't know. I, fuck, whatever. Uh, that field is now houses. That's gone. Yeah, uh, I've looked at it. But you know what? That was a great place to grow up. Had my first kiss there. I think it was Tara Kenny was her name. Anyway, she lived in the cul-de-sac. Uh, I stepped on my first nail there. Ouch. Yep. I got my first tetanus shot there. Uh, I remember a lot from Hanford. Lucky you. Um, we couldn't even afford tetanus shots when I was a kid. <laughs> My dad was like, shut up, you're fine. It wasn't that rusty. <laughs> uh, but you know what? I, it, it was great. And in those times that I was growing up, Vietnam War was over. Right. Um, I didn't have to worry. I mean, you went to work every day and you came home every night. Well, I mean, I guess you went on some cruises. But yeah, yeah well, I mean, I, there was no, I wasn't growing up worrying about my dad dying. You know, let's talk about that, though. Why you left the Navy? Because you love flying. You'd still be there today if you could fly, right? Yeah, there were some issues that I flew for 11 straight years. That's kind of unheard of, really. I mean, you usually have some desk jobs or you get assigned to a ship. You know, you work catapults or something like that. Well, oh, oh wait, I'm sorry. Let me interrupt you because let's talk about Top Gun real quick. So Top Gun is the fighter school, right? Right. You went and you were actually an instructor in the equivalent of Top Gun for the attack community. For the attack community. Right. So Top Gun, the movie is all about the fighters. This is Top Gun. This is the, the the fighter school, fighter weapons school. This is it. But you were an instructor for the absolute equivalent with the light, attack community. Light attack weapons school Pacific is what I was an instructor in. And I was primary, and I was an air to ACM, which is air combat maneuvering instructor. And I was a uh, weapons delivery instructor. I used to. That's why, you know, when I go out to Tailhook, a lot of guys come up to me and they all remember me. Tailhook, Dan. I dropped a little teaser about how we're going to be doing more of these conversations. So <laughs> let's not give any more uh, any more extra advice on what we've got planned, Jim. Thank all you. right. All right. But from 1972 through 1975, I taught every Navy pilot in the Pacific Fleet weapons delivery. You know, I don't want to blow my own smoke, but one thing that always made me proud, too, is... I always had questions whether I was up to the task of actually even being a Navy pilot. I was, when I walk in the O club, I, do I even deserve to walk in this? Because we had the heaviest loss rates of the war. We had a lot of POWs. We had a lot of heroes there. And sh can I even walk in here? But a couple things. We were down at a Blue Angel party uh, down in Pensacola where it's called their newbie party, where they welcome aboard their new Blue Angels for the year. And Mike Nord, who was a good friend of mine, Mike was a Blue Angel. And I was talking to Mike and this girl walked up and she said to me, oh, were you at Lemoore? And this was when, after I got out and I was in the FBI. She said, were you at Lemoore? And Mike looked at her and said, he was not at Lemoore, he was Lemoore. <laughs> Meaning, you know, yeah. I, I was a pretty well-respected guy. And then... Mm -hmm. I did the, the evaluations of the A-7 against, this was top, top secret back then. It was in Area 51. Me and Don Simmons, who was a Blue Angel, we were chosen to do the evaluation of A-7s against the new, aircraft. The new stuff? Well, against stuff. I mean, there was, we, had, we had enemy planes that they had, and they wanted to see how head-to-head -head the A-7 would stack up against them. And those planes were flown by the Top Gun, the guys that started Top Gun. Uh, John Nash was the guy that kind of trained me. He was the guy that started Top Gun. But it was called Project Have Idea. And the communication that came out saying, we want two guys to go to Area 51 to do the evaluation. 
But those two guys have got to be what their peers consider the top ACM pilots because we don't want the pilot issue to come up. Well, Joe Blow could have done better. So if we send the guys that are, if their peers say they are the best in air-to-air combat, then they will accept that. And they sent me. So that, that kind of made made me feel good. And then just before I got out, I won the bombing derby. It's all everybody competition. So it made me feel good that, you know, when I questioned myself, are you really up to being a Navy pilot? I think I did pretty good. I do. I think you shit on yourself. I do. I, well, you're the same way. Shut up, Dick. You're 100% the same way. Shut up, way. Dick. We're no. not talking about me. I know, but it no must bitch. be hereditary. <laughs> because, well, you know, he when just, you're growing up, you don't have a lot of self-confidence. I'm thinking, how can a how can a kid from Dawson grade school in Detroit, Michigan, wind up being head of an FBI SWAT team? I'm the exact yeah. opposite. I'm like, yes, a dude from Ridgeville, Ohio is this guy. Like you have like in my mind, you have to because right. because every every anytime you don't, that's when that lets the rest of the doubt creep in. You know? I always thought, what are these guys seeing so much in me? They'd make me head of a SWAT team when I don't see that in myself. Well, yeah. let's, let's talk about that. So 77, you decide, um, in a nutshell, basically, you're, you're going to stop flying. They, they've got plans for you. You're going to help to um, get the F-18 program off the ground. And you see the writing on the wall. Yeah. Um, the, so McDonnell Douglas offered me a job. I which I wish you would have taken now because we would have been rich. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know I, uh, we would have been. <laughs> I decided to get out because after Vietnam, the funding got cut. There was like a backlash of funding and everything for yeah, those. You know, they took away. We weren't getting much flight time. I was operations officer for an attack squadron on the Kitty Hawk. And it just, but the family separation is what bothered me. I mean, I don't know where I was going to have to go for the next seven or eight years before I became a commanding officer. But I said, I, I'm not, I don't want to do that. McDonnell Douglas offered me a job. And then the FBI had offered, I thought I was going to the FBI after Vietnam. I had my, no, 75. The FBI said, okay, we're ready for you. So I had my going away party at Lemoore. They gave me a bunch of gifts. I made a bunch of speeches. I love you guys. I said, you know, when I was growing up, there was only... Three things I wanted to be in life. One was a Navy pilot. One was an FBI agent. and One was an Indian chief. Uh, so I'm going to go try the number two thing, the FBI, the FBI. And everybody, yeah, yeah, good luck to you. And two Indian. days later, the FBI yeah. called me and said, we got a hiring freeze. So I had to grovel back and say, hey, can I stay in the, can I stay in the Navy? So I stayed. Hold in, on, hold no. on. Indian chief? Yeah, I wanted yeah. to be an Indian chief. <laughs> Because he's a, he's, a nat- he's a natural Apache Indian. That was my speech. He's a natural leader. Apparently, he always gets thrust into leadership positions wherever he goes. Geronimo it's only was my natural. Hero. Yeah. So you yeah. want to be an Indian chief? Mm-hmm. All right. All yeah. Right. Chief will bomb you. <laughs> That's what you would be. Chief shoot you down. <laughs> hmm. So the Indian FBI, chief. the Navy was pretty nice about letting me go in the FBI and they even let me take a plane up to Sacramento to take my FBI physical. You took an A7 to Sacramento? Sac- no, they, 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 that's, they let that's me take sweet. it up there. They said, go ahead. I, I, they shot me off to Kitty Hawk. I went up to, <laughs> I went up to took my A7 and then I came back and then my last oh, flight. Shit. Did you take a little detour? Did you do like, I'm going down the coast? Like, or do you, no, you got coordinates and you got to go and back? I didn't uh, want to, hey, they're no. nice enough. I wasn't going to get a flight violation. Nope, I'm pushing the limits. I'm like, hey, we're going to go circle around Mount Rainier. Yeah, that's what you say. <laughs> but then my last flight, Pat Nichols was air boss on the, uh, the Kitty Hawk. And uh, a plane had to go back to Lemoore. The Kitty Hawk was getting ready to go back to Pacific, go back into the Pacific. We were working up and we were doing our operational readiness inspection, but a plane had to go back to Lemoore. So they said, why don't you take it back? And then I was going to get out within two or three days. Just so I was probably the most current A-7 pilot ever to join the, the Navy. But as I, as I shot off the catapult, there was, it was very emotional. As I shot off the catapult, I remember Pat Nichols said, good luck to you, inspector. Yeah, no, and it's went, your I last time. More, got out of that cockpit, didn't even look back and went in the FBI. Nice. So you go from being the man, the myth, the legend, I, well, from where you were. I'm only basing that on a couple of things. Like, like I got selected for the air combat and 
Mike Nord said I was the man. So right, shut up. Yeah. You were the see? man. Yeah. See? So he's just so, always got to pump the brakes when yeah. I'm trying to, when I'm trying to blow, blow well, I don't, up. I here. don't like, I mean, it's some, uh, that sounds kind no, of, no, not well, you shut up, him shut up. Yeah. But what talking I'm talking about, yeah. oh, he's not the man. I know. But what I'm saying is you go from being well-respected, the man. Now you're, now you would say well-respected. That's, yeah. That's fair. Yeah. When you get to the FBI, now you're a rook. Did they have a term for new FBI agents? They call them like boots or something. Uh, they had to have some kind of term. Come on, this is a this is a, a fraternity. No, I no I, no hazing, no nothing. No, the the FBI Academy was not particularly difficult. And everything. And I guess law, it must have been different for you because you weren't twenty two, twenty three year old call, college I'll kid. Tell you what they call me? They call me pops. <laughs> <laughs> was, uh, was, That's right. I was thirty four years yeah. old in the class. Yep. Yeah, so I was. Mm-hmm. 34 years old with life experience that none of those motherfuckers could understand. That's true. You I know? mean, there had to been a couple of you uh, along the same career path that you've met oh, that I, were from, that were from military background. A lot of them would say, wait a minute, what? You were a, a Navy pilot for 11 years. Why are you here with us going through? So now it's something I always wanted to do. I mean, they were kind and of, you did. I mean, you remember when this thing started in the last episode, right? The whole plan was always to be in the FBI. Oh, because of the cousin. Because of the cousin, cousin, because of, you know, I, I just, law enforcement always. Who was, who was the director when you got in? It wasn't Hoover. No. no Hoover had died about five gone. years before I got in. I think it was Webster, William Webster. Oh, it was. You're right. Yeah. Yep. He's, he's the guy that gave me my credentials. So we moved to Seattle in 78. 78. And which, little fun story, we were there for the eruption of Mount St. Helens. That was kind of cool. And you had some good times there, right? D.B. Cooper. You're a little involved in that. Right. Which the guy that broke me in was D.B. Cooper's. He was a case agent, so I, I got to cover a lot. Are you familiar with who D.B. Cooper was? Oh, yeah. I've seen the show on the History Channel. Yeah. Uh, so D.B. Cooper robs a bank, gets on a commercial flight, right? Right. Has a parachute, opens that door, and jumps out somewhere over, was it the Snake River? It was. Or Columbia. The money washed down the Columbia River. Columbia River. Yeah. So he jumps out of a commercial airliner right. with all this money. And never found. Never found again. The money washed down while I was out there. The money washed down the, the river. But, uh, you know, I used to do a lot of leads with, because the guy that my training officer was the case agent for D.B. Cooper. Quick story on D.B. Cooper and everything. We had hijackings were really big back in the 80s. You know, we, we didn't have all the security and everything mm-hmm. like that. And when the NATO, or when the FBI found out I had pilot background, they, they wanted, they were starting up FBI surveillance programs. So they... He said, "Hey, you're gonna you're gonna be a surveillance pilot for us up here in Seattle. We're gonna send you to San Francisco for ten days of training, and you're gonna go up and do some surveillance training." I said, ah, "Okay, I just want to do that part time, though. I want to arrest bank robbers and stuff like that." So, but I got I got checked out, and I come back. Well, then we had a hijacking at Seattle Tacoma Airport, and the guy his demands were, "I want a Cessna brought up." And I want a million dollars and I want to go, I want the Cessna to take me over the mountains and I'm going to bail out of the Cessna. Sort of like, this guy was a nutcase, but that was his demands. So Ron Biner was a negotiator and, and Ron said, hey, have Larkin go get, the, go get the airplane. He'll taxi the airplane up. We'll try to lure the guy down get the SWAT team to grab him, all that stuff. I said, okay, so I go get the, I go get the Cessna and the, this hijacking was going on and on. The media was there. They're all on the roofs. They're taking high power photographs of, of all the hijacking. It's a live hijacking. And the guys, so Biner says, hey, the demands are that you come up with the Cessna, but you have to be naked. You have to be naked so he knows <laughs> you don't have a gun Shit. and you can't confront him. He, he is mandating you be naked. And I, I look at all these cameras and I'm thinking, you know, I'm an Irish kid. I'm not well endowed. It's cold here in Seattle. The wind's blowing. The rain's flying. And I said, uh, Ron, I'm not going naked. He said, well, that, come on, just go along. I said, I'm not going to have all my friends in Detroit, all my friends at the University of Michigan, all my friends say, oh, my God, look at Larkin. You know, that, that was my main thing. So I said, you got to work it down that I can at least wear my underwear. Biner says, Listen, Jim, I got a lot of shit on my mind right now. <laughs> the last thing I need. The last thing I need is, well, 
I, that wasn't enough for yep. me. Every 10 minutes, I'd open the door to the negotiator. Hey, did you talk to him about the underpants yet? <laughs> Dude, I would have walked in there. <laughs> I would have walked into the negotiator's room naked. Like, we doing this or what? Like, <laughs> hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> he says, will you get out of here? I got a lot on my mind. I said, well, have you even asked him about the underpants? <laughs> did you mention it? Have you, can you just mention it? I don't. <laughs> he said, what are you so worried about? And I said, I'll explain that to you later. I don't want to be wandering around on national television <laughs> naked in a windy Seattle Rainstorm. Do you understand that? Oh, shit. What do you want me to say? You want me to say that I don't have a big dick? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, you know, we were eventually able to get the guy to come uh, down the steps to retrieve something. And the SWAT team grabbed him. So I didn't have to do any of that. <laughs> and for at least two hours, I was bugging him every 15 minutes. Uh, hey, Ron, what about? Reminds uh, me. Did you ever watch Black Mirror? No, I don't oh, think so. There's a, it's a, it's a show. It's and it's crazy. It's about things in the future and whatever. But one of the episodes was that this prime minister, um, there was a guy who kidnapped a girl and he went live and he said, "Hey, look, the only way you're getting this girl back alive is if the prime minister has sex with a pig." And the prime minister was like, "I'm not doing that." And all the people around him were like, "Nah, bro, listen." He wants this girl to die. <laughs> He's like, God damn it. What? And he ends up having to do it. And it turns out that he had already released the girl when the guy did it. But yeah, that's all that, that, that reminds me of. Uh, so anyway, we, we come, we get to Seattle or we get to uh, Cleveland, 1980. And you shit on yourself saying that, oh, well, I don't understand why these guys, you know, uh, why they would all follow me. Why I was, you know, why they all said I was so great. But then you do it again. Then in the FBI, it's the equivalent of you being in the Navy, right? Where everybody's following you again. Everybody knows Jim Larkin. I guess that's true. I mean, I, I don't want, I feel very embarrassed even so saying that. But one time, okay. I don't understand why people are, you know, I don't know why they surround themselves with me. But two times, lightning don't strike twice in the same place. I mean, clearly it's you. I don't know. I, I do. Well, and so does everybody nice else. Say, and it's nice of you to, but I, I guess I kind of was when the shit hit the fan because I was head of the SWAT team. I was kind of the go-to guy to. Yeah. But you're not a cocky up. bastard. I've learned through years and years of work that if you're a good leader and you're a cocky bastard, then all of a sudden what's going to happen is people are going to be turned off by it. People are going to think like, Hey man, I don't, I don't want to be led by this asshole. So you almost that, that, that really cool approach you have and that, not wanting the shine put on you. I think that really helps a hundred percent with people trusting that they can trust you. Right. Well, that's, you know, I, I always shook my head. Like what, do, what do people see in me? that They think I would even deserve to be head of a major SWAT team for 13 years, but I don't know. Cause I always looked at myself in the mirror. Like, you know, I, you're nothing special to me, pal. I really felt that way. Yeah. Yeah. And you are, you are. And, and like, like I just said, when people have that trust that, that you're not going to be an asshole, that you have their back, that you uh, have all the right intentions, um, it's really easy for people to follow that. If you were a cowboy and an asshole and throwing people under the bus and doing all that, then it's really easy for people to go, not, not this guy. And that's, you know, I had to learn that the hard way a lot in, in a lot of my work and work in life uh, where I wanted to be, you know, the, the A side and wanted to run things a certain way. And you have to realize that working people adjusting to how people respond to you is more than um, taking credit is more than anything else that, that goes along with the job. You talk about um, hijackings. I mean, you had your fair share of shit in Cleveland too, right? We had the shootout with the armored car robbers. Right. We had uh, Ornetta Mays where I was just talking uh, with Jim new who was actually shot by Ornetta Mays. Right. Um, Ornetta Mays hijacked a plane in Cleveland. And when they made entry, Jim knew is what in the front, right? He was in front of me. Yeah. yeah he was first guy and what first guy or no, just in front of you. I, so Ornetta I, I Mays, was, I was down, I was back at number three. So or, Ornetta Mays basically one, what she, she ran past security. She gets she, on the plane. Right. I think she shot a gun running past security. Got on the at Cleveland Hopkins. At Cleveland Hopkins, got on the plane, and then we had a big argument about who the Cleveland police said this is our jurisdiction. She shot at a Cleveland police officer. Okay. FBI was saying, "Hey, FBI has sole jurisdiction over hijacking." So they had they were button heads about who was going on the plane, and 
what they decided was a political compromise. Okay, we're going to send three Cleveland cops and two FBI agents on a plane to get her. It was bullshit. I mean, it should have been one or the other. You don't mix and match SWAT teams at the last minute just to appease egos and stuff. But anyway, I wound up on a plane. Jim was in front of me. He got shot in it, but he had a bulletproof vest on. So still, it's like getting kicked by a horse, ain't it? (laughs) Yeah. So you got Ornetta Mays. I mean, you handled that. Guy's gotten a shootout with armored car robbers. Uh, where was that? Uh, it was at 65th and Detroit in the Kmart parking lot. These guys were badasses. I mean, this these guys had made a pact that they, they were going to... It was like all these movies you ever see, these major shootout movies. These guys had... Uh, they had done like four armored car robberies. They had shot the guards. They had, they had armor-piercing rounds that we recovered. They were really ready to go. And, and they were... There was three different types of narcotics in their system when we got them. My plan was we can't take them when they're sitting in the back of those armored cars with their fingers on uh, drum magazines. They had assault rifles and everything. We got to get them when they're not ready. And so what we did is we followed them for months and we plan every morning. When they would steal a van, we knew they were going to do the armored car robbery. And uh, my plan was I'm not going to take the guys while they're in the parking lot on the guns because they're We'll win, but we're going to lose FBI agents. It was, when we see what lot they're in. We're going to intercept the armored car before it gets to the lot. We're not going to let that armored car. Then they're going to say, where's the armored car? They're going to go back to where we knew they had dropped their, their drop car, and we'll take them there. And we, we won't be able to get them in the act, but we'll get them for, which is kind of exactly what happened. Luckily, we were able to stop the armored car about two blocks from the bank. But prior to that, the, front, the surveillance people found them at 98th and Detroit. They said, they're sitting there. They're ready to go. They're in the stolen van. They're, they're ready for the armored car. So all the front office said, go get them. I said, no, I'm not going to go get them. I'm not going to lose SWAT guys. Uh, my plan is to stop the armored car. I'm not going to risk the lives of our SWAT guys. I said, those guys on their drum magazines of a thousand rinds of armor-piercing rounds are going to kill us, and I'm not going to do it. No, you're ordered to do it. I said, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And so we didn't do it, and we stopped it. And then, so then when as they came back to get their, to switch cars, and we got them when they were, and one of the guys uh, told the guy in jail, man, we were going to take, take care of business with the FBI, but they caught us with nothing but our dicks in our hand. Yeah. yeah which was good. I mean, they would have, we would have won because we had the superiority on manpower, but we would have lost some agents. So. Or maybe more than some, right? It would have ended up well, being, being a bloodbath that you, you eventually Miami. won. But yeah. This would have been another training for the FBI. This would have been another turning point for the FBI like Miami was. So uh, when I when a quick one quick here, we got some time. When I got to, to Cleveland, we were working on a RICO case on some pretty badasses, uh, Kevin McTaggart and Keith Ritson, and uh, they, were, they were all associated with the mob and everything. And it, it was a pretty nasty group of guys. And when I got here, we were looking for a guy named Kevin McTaggart, and he used to, what's that bar right at the top of the flats? Uh, which bank? Right up from the uh, Harbor Inn, right at the top there, right by the church. I don't know. There's a bar there. Carney's, Carney's Bar. All these thugs used to go in there. Hell's Angels used to frequent it, McTaggart and everything. And they, you know, we were looking for them on some pretty heavy-duty warrants, and they said, hey, I had just gotten to Cleveland. So I said, hey, why don't you just dress down, let your hair grow, get a beard over the weekend, look like you're a longshoreman, go in there and hang around, have a few beers, see if Kevin McTaggart shows up. We'll be outside. If he does, you can come out and say he's in there now. So I said, okay. So I I did that. I go in there. I walk in the bar and I order, order a beer and I'm looking around. And it, it's like the barroom scene at Star Wars. I mean, there's some nasty looking guys and there's bikers in there and all sorts of people. So I order a beer and my heart rate's up around 220 beats a minute. <laughs> but this... Uh, He's landing on a carrier again. Yeah. All of a sudden, this dog walks up to me and goes, starts sniffing at my leg and goes, one bark and walks away. I said, oh, that ain't good. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm sitting there, my hand's shaking a little bit, and I'm drinking my beer. And uh, then the dog comes back and he starts scratching at my foot and he goes, he walks away again, but he scr- it's actually scratched my foot. So I said, is he smelling my fear? Does he, 
Is he smelling my gun? Is he? How does he know? Because now I'm convinced this dog knows I don't belong here. I mean, is he just barking at me because I'm a stranger and he knows I don't belong here? And he, he goes through this routine about three or four times where he's coming up and whoa, 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 scratching on my foot and, and making a big scene about all this stuff. And so I looked at this guy next to me and I said, hey, why, why is this dog uh, focused on me so much right now? Why is he barking at me and scratching at me? The guy looks under the bar, looks and says, you're the only one standing on his fucking bone. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of them little steak bones. Yeah. But I, it was under my boot. And a dog wanted his bone. And it was the last thing you were thinking. That I, was, I was thinking. He's <laughs> like, I got to shoot my way out of this here. This dog's got me pegged as a, a federal agent. How does he know? How does he possibly know <laughs> that I'm an FBI agent? I was convinced of that. But now I stand on his bone. Man, that's crazy. <laughs> that's Like you said, your heart rate's up. Your oh, arm. God, I'm, I'm sure that I'm caught. I'm done. Uh, Shoot my way out. Oh, uh, man. You're giving the, you're giving the safe word. You're like <laughs> avocado, avocado. <laughs> man. So how many years were you in the FBI total? Uh, 25. Oh, just a little under 25. Man, that's, that's crazy. And still work. Well, you were still working up until a few, one a yeah, year then ago. I, I just wasn't ready to retire. So I went with the Lorraine County Drug Task Force for, you know, uh, 18 years. Bullshit, man. I mean, people say, oh, you got big shoes to fill with your dad. I'm like, bro, oh, ain't no filling these shoes. You know what I mean? I look back on my life. I, listen, I've had a good career, right? I've done some good stuff, but. I have to do that same show with my dad. People are like. Ain't nothing like people, this. Yeah, but people are like, uh, well, man, you, you're as good as uh, your dad is with guns. I'm like, that dude's got more knowledge in his pinky finger than I'm ever going to have in my whole entire right, life. Right. I can't ever. I'm it's never. Like I, I picture Hannah having a podcast, right? <laughs> my oldest daughter having a podcast and 20 years from now, she has me on there and she's like, Hey, what'd you do? I'm like, uh, I went to Panera a lot. I, I you know, yeah. I used to, I, I stopped at Gourmet every day for lunch. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I, fuck, I don't know. The rest of some bad guys. <laughs> you know, when I went to the, when I went to the drug task force and everything, Rick Thomas, who was, Jim's old chief of police were sponsoring the police memorial at, uh, and asked me to be the, the keynote speaker at, huh. the, at the police memorial. And uh, Rick Thomas introduced me just like, Jimmy, you know, a, a Navy pilot, combat missions, head of the FBI SWAT team, 2000 arrests on the fugitive task force, blah, 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 but just really painting me up as, as a real hero. And so I get up, I get up there and I, I looked at the crowd and they're all cops there. And I said, you know, guys, Dawned on me that, as Chief Thomas was saying, those very nice things about what a, a great guy I am, what a hero, what a great background I, I had. You know, one thing I've never done, I've never stopped a car all by myself at two in the morning with a carload of assholes. Yeah. I said, and that, to me, would scare me more than landing on aircraft carriers at night or shootouts with armored car robbers or, I said, stopping a guy at two in the morning to me is probably the most dangerous thing anybody could possibly do. You just never know. I said, I've never done that. I have absolutely never done that. So he's presenting me as a hero, but my hat's off to you guys. You oh, do that. stop it. You guys do? No, I'm very serious about that. 100% Ugh. serious. I can't imagine what must, the fear that must go through a guy's mind, a police officer's mind to stop a carload of thugs all by himself when backup is still... Yeah, long, long yeah. Away. I, I mean, I, I just can't imagine that. That's Ugh. right. Ugh, whatever. All right. I do have one question. We're gonna, you're gonna sit here and look at me, and we're gonna act like Jim's not here. I want to know what makes you proud about your boy over All here. All right, Jim. stop it. Tell me. All right, tell so, me now what makes you no, proud. No, this your boy. is stupid. That's what I want. Um, as always, we <laughs> thank you guys for your support wherever you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> Trying to bail on that one. Come no, on, just give no. me like one or two things that makes you Damn. proud of him. I Damn. think it's important. Well, I, you know, uh, Jimmy was a lot like me when he went through school. He went through school without a purpose. He didn't know what he wanted to do. He just, uh, he, he wasn't much of a student, and I didn't know where he was headed. Uh, then he came to me and said, hey, you know, I know you want me to go to college, but I think that's going to be a waste of your time or your money, my time. I don't want to go to college. I want to go in the Army. And I thought, because he was such a terrible student, I thought, Oh, man, they're going to send this kid back to me in 10 days saying, no, thanks, uh, you know, keep him. But I was very proud that he really went ahead 
in the Army and did a very good job and then came back and did a very good job getting hired by the North. I told him, hey, Jimmy, I never expected you to do so well in the Army. Stay in the Army. Don't. No, no, I want to be a cop. And, oh, Christ, this ain't going to work out either. Just stay in the Army. Where? But he came back and he did very good in Ridgeville. And uh, I've ridden with him a couple times. And I just think he's he's turned out to be a very good police officer in my estimation. He deals with people very well. It's him like me. When I didn't know what I wanted to do, I was a poor student. I, I didn't think I was going to be able to do anything. When he found what he wanted to do, Army or canine or law enforcement, anybody should should understand that. If you find something, you make a big mistake in life by not doing what you want to do. If you do something that you think you're supposed to do, or your parents want you to do this, or they want you to be an attorney, or they want you to go to college, and you don't want to go to college. so Yeah, you got to make your own trail. Yeah, no. And then I'm I'm amazed at how many people probably do stuff they never wanted to do and they don't turn out to do it too well. Whereas if they had the luxury of doing something, somebody asked me just a couple of years ago, how long are you going to keep, because I'm 78 years old, how long are you going to keep working? I tell people I haven't worked a day in my life and I'm not going to start now. Everything's an adventure to me. <laughs> That's it really right. is. I mean, I mm-hmm. everything's an adventure. I think he's a very good police officer. I enjoy riding with him. Yeah. Yeah. We, it's funny because I got to see him, you know, as a troublemaking teenager, become a cop and, and have his chest out at first. And then as the years go on and he Mm -hmm. developed into the the cop that he is now, I think that uh, a lot of people uh, understand that people will gradually, you know, change in their life and become uh, who they end up becoming at the end. And uh, I mean, a lot of that I think is, is because of the example you laid. So you can always appreciate the fact that you did a good enough job to turn him into the the man that he is, and I, I thank you for that. I work up at this uh, uh, visual range where you shoot lasers and stuff, and we had some people up there that I was teaching to shoot. And this girl, she came up to learn to shoot, and we started talking, and I said, my son and son-in-law are both cops. And she said, oh. She said, uh, who's your son? I said, Jim Larkin. She said, oh, yeah, but same name, Jim Larkin. She said, I know your son. I said, good or bad? And she said, oh, he stopped me. I said, how did that go? And she said, be honest with you, he was kind of a dick. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's not where I thought the story was going. I no? thought this was going to be like, oh, hey, no. you know, no. she said. No, it must have been in the early 2000s. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, she said you, you, you weren't too. She said it was just expired plates or something. And she said he was kind of a dick. I said, oh. Yeah, get I your expected. shit together. You wouldn't have to stop you if you had your shit together. <laughs> Bro, who comes to like, like, you know, you're, you're my dad. Who's like, your son's a dick. Who says that? <laughs> Well, she said with, with me, I thought yeah, you would. Yeah, yeah. Man, but I tell you what, this has been really cool. Uh, I, I think we could have did a part three on this, but, you know, I, I definitely think that, you know, in the future when we start talking about different things that you might be able to shed light on, um, we didn't even get to touch on how you feel about the FBI and the FBI leadership now and how like the FBI comes out and says, oh, the, the biggest threat to the United States right now is white supremacy. Everyone knows that's bullshit. And I don't want to have to hold you to the fire for these people because you're not the, those people. You'll never be. You know those what? Maybe people. we have him back. Maybe we have him back. And we talk about the FBI, good and bad. Yeah. Because um, the FBI I grew up with is not the FBI that's going on now. Right. Right. And I still believe that the the rank and file FBI, the guys that are out there, the men and women that are out there every day are doing the best they can for this country. My problem is not with the men and women that are out there every day. My problem is with the leadership. Uh, the leadership has failed the FBI. And it does piss me off because I feel like the rank and file should be able to all get together and go, this is not the way. Right. They've allowed, they have allowed the FBI, the leadership to become a a political arm. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. The Hoover days are gone. Um, But maybe we have them back. Maybe we have you back and we talk about it. You know, on that issue too, when I wrote up that that article for the A7 Association and and stuff, I was, and when when people ask me about the difference in, naval aviation and working with the police on the drug task force, I tell people, it's been my opinion that 90%, 95% of Navy pilots are just good guys that you just, you really feel good about yourself uh, just because you're hanging out with them. You're part of that. that mm-hmm. I said, I, I kind of feel that way about police officers too. 90 to 95% of police officers are just good regular guys that you're honored to be around. You like to interact with, you like to have a couple beers with. Mm-hmm. I said, FBI agents, maybe 20%. I said, the FBI's got a bunch of weird dudes. They really do. They got some strange individuals that come into that FBI. And uh, 
the twenty five percent are good guys and they're hardworking guys, but there's some there's some really weird people in the FBI. <laughs> well, and you had the best job ever, right? I mean, you weren't you weren't sitting there behind a desk doing white collar. You weren't doing reports. You were out there kicking in doors every day. Yeah. I mean, you were either, fortunate. Either with bank robberies or the Fugitive Task Force. Yeah. The FBI started the Fugitive Task Force that the Marshals do now. That's probably the most exciting job in law enforcement is a fugitive task force, just out finding people, arresting them, and then going looking for the next guy. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, maybe we have them back. We'll have them back if everybody, uh, everybody Dude, I bet you it. everyone will be asking. Yeah, hey, if everybody wants it, we have them back. back. Yeah, you know what? And if they ask for him back, we're going to have to make him his own jingle. Oh, and we'll figure it man. out. Oh, I got some other great FBI stories. <laughs> oh, no, we can get into it. So we'll get you your own jingle. So right now we have a conspiracy theorist we bring on the show all the time, and he has his own jingle. Hey, it's Jeff, the conspiracy theorist. And we're not going to bring him on with you because no, no. he will go down that rabbit hole. Oh, yeah, with the FBI. But, but yeah, so he has his own jingle. So maybe maybe Jim, the Navy FBI pilot agent, and gets his own like, jingle. You like a plane coming yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, so, so pray and spray over here. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. We'll figure it out. We'll talk to Nick. We'll see if Nick can make us a jingle. Uh, all right. So we got to get out of here. All right. Uh, listen, awesome. we're going to give you, like we always do, we'll give you the last word. Um, whatever you want to say that you want people to know right now, you start talking. When you stop talking, show's over. Well, I feel a little awkward in being here trying to be the center of attention and talking about but I, I, I am the biggest thing that I've come away with is I'm, I'm just kind of proud of where all this is. It's over now. I'm, I mean, I just uh, I'm not uh, involved in law enforcement or the Navy anymore, but I'm very proud of that. And I'm proud that most people, for some reason that I don't understand, saw me as not just a Navy pilot, but a pretty good Navy pilot. And they saw me as not just an FBI agent, but a good Navy pilot. It gives me more pride than anything else. But I also am embarrassed when it sounds like I'm blowing my horn. But when I was a 10-year-old kid, I never thought that anybody would respect me well enough to think that of me. So there you are. As always, we thank you guys for your support. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, if you could drop us a like, drop us a five-star review, that really helps us out. You can find us on Facebook at Pod Bless America. And you can find us on Twitter at Jim and Dan Show. You can find us on Getter at Pod Bless America. And you can find me at Jim at PBAPodcast.com. And you can find me at Dan at PBAPodcast.com. So until next time, I'm Jim. I'm Dan. And Pod Bless America. 